Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Lee. And I'm Gretchen. And in this week, we are talking about Arabic lesbians in medieval literature. Woo! I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. This is really cool. We're going back. We're going back to the Middle Ages to talk about ladies boning. Okay. And loving each other. People talk about the Middle Ages like they're the Dark Ages, but I feel like we're finding so many amazing queer things in the Middle Ages <laughs> that like, yeah. this is like the Rainbow Ages. <laughs> oh my gosh. The Rainbow Ages. Yeah, That's no, we queer. keep finding more and more things. And I mean, it's, you know, it's especially when you kind of go outside of like Christian tradition. Yes. There's a lot of wonderful things to be found mm-hmm. here. Um, so yeah, so we're going to be... Talking about um, the the Arabic uh, erotic literature tradition. Yes. This this time around, which um, much like what we did when we were talking about China, um, we're we're pretty excited to get into all of these really cool stories. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So we figure we should do as we always try and do, and start with some content warnings. Uh, the first thing is that when we use the terms uh, male and female or man woman. Uh, unfortunately, this does assume cisness. This is not something that we found a lot of information on trans experience in. So uh, we just want to give people a heads up that uh, we're going to be using when we use male and female and man and woman, we are talking in the under the uh, cis umbrella. Uh, another thing to be aware of is that there are a lot of sources that seem to be using lesbian as a catch-all for like all woman-loving women or queer women experience. Unfortunately, this is also really common in academic circles to use lesbian when they mean just women who have either erotic or, you know, romantic relationships with other women. So, or we, even even in like, you know, communities of women. It all comes right. from um from a scholar called Judith Bennett who talked about how you know, if something isn't explicitly lesbian, there are a lot of cases for lesbian-like behavior or communities within, especially in medieval periods. Right, right. And while we can't speak to their intention of these sources, I I mean, I would assume they're probably not, it's probably not erasure. But we also want to make it clear that, like, we don't mean that as an erasure. So if we use lesbian, understand that that's pro- we're probably quoting from sources who are using it that way, and we are in no way meaning to, like, erase by pan or otherwise, like, non-monosexual queer women. So we just want that to be clear, that, like, Mm -hmm. in the sources that we're using, lesbian seems to be being used as an umbrella term. And and that's unfortunate, and we may have a conversation about that, especially the history of the evolution of the term lesbian, uh, which is a really interesting thing to discuss, and we will probably discuss that further down the line. But for now, we just want people to know. We will try as much as we can to use queer or woman-loving woman, but some of the sources we use may use lesbian as an umbrella term. Mm -hmm. And also one other thing to note is that, you know, since we're talking about queer women's sexuality in the Middle Ages, just like when we were in medieval Europe, there's going to be some explicit sexual content. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. 
Um, it's like some of it is is kind of delightfully explicit. Like it's kind of nice mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's yeah. explicit because so often, like, um, I mean, we'll we'll find this out as we as the what episode goes on, right? Like when we did our episode, cloistered queers. The the conversation from men was like, what do women do? How can they have sex? Um, they're doing that, but there's no penis involved. So therefore, it is not sex. Um, it is the sin without a name. <laughs> we don't even know what they do, much less talk about it. So, and there is some I of like that. I just turned into George Takei right there <laughs> for a second. I don't know. It was very strange. <laughs> oh anyway but yeah there's explicit sexual content just be aware Mm -hmm. yeah and so this we're getting back to our like concept focused episode so we'll talk a little bit about social context timeline kind of our thesis statement then we'll move into some examples of specific people who might fit the general concept then we will finish with takeaways conclusions final thoughts and then our Um, As we end every episode, our How Gay Were They, which is our personal ranking about how likely it is that these people or this situation wasn't straight. Um, Mm -hmm. Do we have any announcements? No, I don't. It's pretty quiet right now, I think. Um, But yeah. So so with that, Gretchen, do you want to start in on our main topic, which we have entitled Thigh Fencing and the Saffron Massage? Yes, yes. Saffron massage is my new favorite euphemism. Um, (laughs) And we're going back to thigh fencing, folks. Yeah. Yes. This is where it all came from. It did. That we gave you that little teaser in Cloistered Queers. We did. Diving back in. We are diving back in. So let's (laughs) talk about the medieval Arabic erotic tradition. So in this episode, we're primarily going to be dealing with literary sources rather than anecdotal stories about lesbian activity or queer woman activity from western authors because there are a lot of very uh colonialist oriental uh perspectives on what the ottoman or you know otherwise like arabic uh islamic court life was like and we've tried to avoid those particularly because they have a very western uh colonialist problematic lens so we're very exoticizing yes very like ooh, look at these exotic harems with viziers and and all of these you know women fawning over these these men and all of these very colonialist male writers looking and being like look at the exotic east oh right right like the the discussions of especially uh harems from the Mm -hmm. western perspective have a tendency to be very exoticizing and colonial as well as really like sexist and gross so whether or not vizier harems were hotbeds of what they call the sapphic vice as one such western writer says is really not our focus this episode we're far more interested in what the actual arabic literary tradition of the medieval period has to say about itself rather than, you know, filtering that through a Western lens. So mm-hmm. a cup, there are some points where that may come up, but we're primarily focused specifically on, like, the original sources of what do people within the Arabo-Islamic tradition have to say about their own experiences or as close to it as, as we can get. So historically, the Islamic tradition was much more open to frank and explicit discussions of sexuality. That is one thing that differs from especially the Christian tradition during the medieval period. You have things like legal discussions regarding whether or not the Quran verse, um, which is 
Your women are your tilth, which is a term for a plot of land. Uh, go then into your tilth in any way you wish. So there's this verse in the Quran that says that. And there are actual like legal discussions amongst Islamic scholars as to whether or not this allows for only like vaginal or anal sex or for a wide variety of sexual positions and entries. Like these are these are things within their actual like theological legal tradition that they're having conversations about like which positions are okay by the Quran. <laughs> and actually that particular verse follows a story where um uh one of the prophets contemporaries named Umar ibn al-Khattab apologized to the prophet for being tired the next day because he'd spent the entire night before having sex with his wife <laughs> from behind. <laughs> and so then came this verse of like, oh, it's okay. You can, you know, you can have sex with your wife from behind. That's cool. And a bunch of other positions. So these are, it's very different, I think, especially from a Western Christian perspective to have this be specifically a part of the like the theological conversations that they're having. Mm -hmm. Female sexuality was recognized, which is another difference, even exaggerated at some points. Some theologians in the Islamic tradition have historically argued that if female sexual desire is unregulated or unsatisfied, the whole social and political order could collapse. So on the one hand, like, that's, you know, still has layers of, like, patriarchal male perspective involved, but, like... Snaps for acknowledging female sexuality as something worth talking about and valuing yeah. and, like, <laughs> make sure your wife is satisfied. I'd rather not go the length of, like, or the whole social order will collapse, but, like, <laughs> I do appreciate, like, ladies have sexual desire. At least desire. it exists. <laughs> right? At least it exists. Yeah, well, and it, you know, it kind of comes back to, you know, what we talked about in China, right? Where it was like, but these things are necessary for, like, health and... Right. It, from, from both ends. There's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about like heat and energy. Yes. In in many many cultures and how sexual activity deals with dissipating heat and transferring that heat. It's all very interesting and we're going to get super yeah. duper into that. Oh yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> oh yeah. Um and so like homosexuality was less harshly condemned in the Quran for males and as in the Torah and Bible, female homosexuality isn't really mentioned right. in the actual religious texts. And I thought it was interesting to note, too, that in a lot of theological Islamic discourse at the time, in the Quran and the Sunnah, which is early Islamic legal tradition, the most vehemently condemned sin in both of those was not homosexuality, as we've seen in, you know, in some, some Western texts, but was adultery or zina, mm -hmm. which... And so the, one of our sources... Um, Sahar Amer actually mentions that the interest and the attention on Zina as the as this this huge sin quote may have encouraged or at least partly the acceptance of liwat, which is the the you know male homosexuality, homosexuality. equivalent in Islamic societies. So much so that there was a 14th century author who suggested in a chapter of one of his books, which was An Intelligent Man's Guide to the Art of Coition, that know that lesbianism ensures against social disgrace while coition is forbidden except through marriage. So again, we see the tradition of like, women having sex with women doesn't involve penetration by a penis. Therefore, it's kind of considered like somewhat no big deal. Right. Um, but that's kind of all we get in religious texts. There really isn't a lot of mention. Right. But what is 
also interesting to note is that during this medieval period, male homosexuality and homoeroticism was actually quite pervasive in the literary texts. You have erotic poetry and and other things that we'll get into a little bit. And we will probably do an episode later on the male, you know, homosexual uh, homosexuality and homoeroticism in the Arabo-Islamic literature because that's that's huge. There's so much more mm. on that. So we'll probably do it. We'll circle back around at some point and do an, an episode on that. But for now, we do just want to mention the context because I think it does provide it does provide a larger context for understanding how lesbianism or queer female activity was, you know, had more space within the society. Mm-hmm. So there were court officials who clearly had male male preferences, like, and there were there's a lot of homoerotic poetry from the Arabic erotic tradition, a lot. Of homoerotic poetry. One of our authors actually ar- argues that when you see homoeroticism in Western literature, they're probably drawing on Arabic sources for a lot of mm-hmm. their euphemisms or even the references to classical literature or classical poetry. And that's where that comes from. But like I said, we can get into that further down the line. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Muslims would have circulated Shabi which are popular editions of much of the celebrated Arab erotica. One publisher based in London in Beirut, Riyad al-Rayez, has published three major works of Arab erotica. Al-Raud al uh, Sorry, I'm far away from my computer, so I'm trying to figure out how to read this. Um, I do actually peripherally know Arabic better than I know, like, French. <laughs> um, Al-Raud al-Atifi, Nuzat al-Qatar, known in the West as The Perfumed Garden. So if you've heard of the perfume garden. And Nuzat al-Abab, Fima al-Yujadfi Kitab. These, um, and there, oh, sorry, I missed one. There is another one that was composed between 1410 and 1443, which is Tufhat al-Arus Vas uh, Maschat an-Nufus. And these works contain collections of poetry and anecdotes by and about gay men and women. Their poetry is explicit and would be considered obscene by Christian moral standards. So the idea that there were no self-declared lesbians or gay men is false. Like these were poems written by and about queer experience at the time, what they would have understood of as queer experience. Commenting on the prevalence of gay men and lesbian women, Muhabid Muhammad bin Zakaria al Razi said in one article, you might find males as women and females as men. There were some who preached the virtues of homosexuality and were called Rulat al-Lata, which is literally ultra-homosexual. Like, super gay. I would would like to be an ultra-homosexual. Yes. Yes, that's the goal. Ultra-homosexuals club. Ultra-homosexuals club. UHC. (laughs) The (laughs) ultra-homosexuals club. Um... Let's make polos with that. Yes. Just UHC in UH- the corner. Yeah. People can try and guess what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. University of, I'm, I don't know. I can't think of UHC. Of of hot crab cakes. <laughs> I don't know why that's where my brain went. Hot crab cakes. I have no University idea. University of hot crab cakes. I kind of I dig it. I mean, crab. No, that's clams. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> Back to homosexuality and homoeroticism. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, when we're talking about male courtiers who had preferences for other men, um, so someone who is clearly not just, you know, situationally homosexual, but who actually has a professed interest in men, mm-hmm. the Abbasid Caliph 
al-Watiq, for example, devoted his life and poetry to his male lover, Muhaj. The Caliph al-Amim, according to As-Suyutin, uh, Tariq al-Khulafa, simply, quote, rejected women and concubines, unquote. He refused, despite the strenuous efforts of his mother to have sex with women. I don't know how that would work, but sure. <laughs> um... To cure her son of his passion for eunuchs, the mother of the caliph, Amin, smuggled among them several slender, handsome maids with short hair, dressed up as boys in tight jackets and girdles. But the thing is, is like this became a trend then. Yeah. Like court circles and common folk alike followed this fashion and similarly dressed up their slave girls and called them rulami. So like... I was I was reading this and it reminded me so much of Emperor I. Yes. Because it just reminds me of that that quote that was just like Emperor I distinctly did not have a fondness for women. Right. Right? And then and then after he like cuts his sleeve (laughs) because he doesn't want to wake Dongshan, then everybody else is cutting their sleeves. I mean it's Oh, and, and, that was no- and that was another society that all of this homo- homoeroticism was coming from this literature and these and this poetry. And it's such a wild parallel to me. Yeah, you're right. No, that's like eerily <laughs> like almost similar. Word for word, just like rejected women and concubines, you know, did not have a fondness for women. <laughs> just ultra yep. homosexual. Yep. Yep. He definitely sounds like an ultra homosexual. Yeah, there's also uh, another poet, um, one of the most prolific poets in this in this time period too, Abu Nawas. So he was one of the lead- leading poets in Arabic literature in the eighth and ninth century. When talking about homosexual identity, actually said, "Would I choose seas over land?" And in his poetry, seas denoted love of women, and lands, barari, denoted love of men. So he says, this is what the book of God commanded us to favor males over females. So, you know, I just like that. Like, do you really expect me to, you know, would I choose seas over land? Like, it's the most easy question in the world. Right. Like, come on. It's this would rhetorical, I, like, guys, like, why? Have, <laughs> I mean, this this just reminds me of, like, every Tumblr lesbian that's like, okay, but, like, have you seen women? <laughs> <laughs> Girls, it's so though, true. Right? It's just like the have flip side of like, have you seen dudes though? Like, I'm yeah. a dude, and have you seen dudes? What? Why would, would I, choose, I choose otherwise? Would I choose seas over land? I had to put that in there because, like, even though we're not getting into this side of that tradition, right. I just I was it's like, great. This is- bloody active gay face this this is why you just become a coastal bisexual and you get both <laughs> i'm gonna call coastal myself bisexual. i'm bi-coastal oh my gosh i'm bi-coastal i like the seas and the land <laughs> and everything else coastal bisexual is my new favorite i'm a coastal bisexual all right folks stay tuned for that merch <laughs> uh, oh, beautiful man. so all right yep um in the Arabic, uh, medieval Arabic tradition, erotic material wasn't confined to one particular genre or one particular form of sexual expression. So even though what we've mentioned so far has been poetry, um, it wasn't as if homoeroticism was limited to poetry. Um, Heterosexuality, homosexuality of both male and female kinds, adultery, prostitution, effeminacy, masturbation, anal intercourse, bestiality, like these are some of the typical examples 
of things that were all generally lumped together under one category of like sexuality or even in terms of, you know, the language being used about them. There's an early book on metonymic expressions that will come up later and we can describe it then, but it focuses on metaphors and euphemisms for sexuality more generally, homosexuality in particular. And and that idea of here is the language we use about sexuality and that includes and that you know, larger umbrella of language we use for sexuality includes under it homosexuality. And so they had varied, you know, they were talking about what are the euphemisms we use to talk about that, which means that it's much more pervasive than just, you know, a one-off thing. Like this is something that is being widely recognized and talked about in the literary tradition. And the euphemisms being used are far more detailed, far more direct, (laughs) far more explicit than the Western tradition, especially with regard to women loving women activity, um, for which in the West, we don't have a lot, even from this time period. Yeah, no, no, uh, no crime without a name here. Right, exactly. So this technique of lumping kind of homosexuality under the broader category of just sexuality more generally likely indicates that homosexuality in Arabic tradition was not viewed as anomalous as it was at the time during Western European culture, but rather was one among several forms of sexual expression that one could, you know, one needed to be aware of and would talk about, and it wasn't taboo in any sense. The presence of it in other genres outside of just the poetic tradition all like also points to how such norms and language could have been disseminated into Western Europe beyond poetry because it was found in, you know, rhetorical pieces, legal pieces, medical, scientific works. So it, it wasn't as if the Western society could just be like, oh, we just won't read the Arabic Islamic poetry. We'll just avoid all that stuff. Like this was this was pretty <laughs> widespread in terms of mm-hmm. pervasive. Right. It was in all sorts of their literature. Yeah. We also we also see a fun trend that we see kind of everywhere else in the world that before Christianity and imperialism came to the Middle East, much like we saw in China, right? We've talked about this, this culture embracing sexuality openly and as healthy and necessary for life. And then, womp womp, here come the Christians, you know, here comes imperialism. And it was only in, you know, there's this, this perception nowadays that like, oh, we can never change these ideas in the Middle East and they're so sexist and these, you know, women are so oppressed and blah, 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 and all of that. And, you know, it's it's un- it's really unfortunate because that's not the way it was. Right. <laughs> these are all Western imports. These yep. are all Western ideals of thinking that have come into this society and have replaced this open, frank discussion of sexuality and replaced it with Christian-like conservatism. So, right. you know, medieval Christianity came in and criticized Islam for its laxness and permissiveness, but now the opposite is true. Same as we saw in China, mm-hmm. same as we, you know, see in in modern Egypt and, you know, which is this this same area. But, you know, we we need to start really be thinking about globally, you know, such damning effects of Christianity. Yep. on the way that the world has thought about gender and sexuality experience. Right. And to my mind, especially because of my, you know, background, both being raised in a very conservative Christian environment and then my academic studies in, you know, church history and linguistics, specifically uh, ancient linguistics like Hebrew and Greek and Latin and all of that, that this wasn't even an attitude that was pervasive of Christianity. This idea that Christianity has always been really repressive is like there are roots of it 
as we saw in our Cloistered Careers episodes, like that has its roots closer to the, the 12th or 13th century. Um, that prior to that time period, even Christianity itself had a much more open way of thinking about human sexuality and and that there are strains of that even within the Christian tradition. So a huge part of something that that I think about as we do this podcast is is acknowledging the ways that like Christianity has been really, really detrimental around the world, not just in and historically, and also how much that at some level feels like a betrayal mm-hmm. of other aspects of Christianity and and the historical roots of Christianity that were not quite so virulent and and homophobic that there are even even within the Christian tradition there are things we can reclaim as positive mm-hmm. historically while also acknowledging like yeah it's done a lot of damage it's done a shit ton of damage globally and historically coming into these cultures and and changing the way that they view themselves Mm-hmm. To the point that, like, as in modern China and, and same in Islam, the, the belief that, like, well, we've always been this way. We've always just been, you know, this is our tradition. Being homophobic and not believing in and accepting other alternate forms of sexuality is just part of who we are. It's like, well, but it wasn't always. And not, and not even in the Christian tradition. I think it's, right. it's what happens when, I think it's what happens when power gets involved. Yes. Right? You know, power it's, and control and... When you divorce the, you know, the ideals of Christianity in the early days from, you know, what then became like crusading and, mm-hmm. you know, and and wrapped up in imperialism, they're right. two very different things. And I think that the, the queer community has such a complicated relationship with faith based on these things. And right. just like Gretchen said, like, there are so many things for you to reclaim. Right. Even right. within that tradition. Yep. So. Right. Definitely. We'll we'll hop off our soapboxes and <laughs> continue telling you oh about my. poetry. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a common theme. Like, I don't think right. we're going to come across anywhere in our topics that this doesn't pop up at some point. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So let's talk about courtly love poetry. We kind of, we kind of mentioned it briefly that, mm-hmm. um, and that was something that came up again in our Cloistered Queers episode about the courtly love tradition in Western Europe. But unbeknownst to many, the medieval Western tradition of courtly love poetry actually owes a great deal to Arabic literature and Arabic erotic poetry specifically. So we'll come back to courtly love poetry later because Lee has their old like paper on it. And <laughs> there's some really delightful things in, in courtly love poetry um, yes. that we will come back to. But for now, we're going to talk about the roots of it um, in the Arabic Uh, erotic tradition. So many Western scholars don't like to acknowledge Arabic influence, typically because of the homoeroticism, the the (laughs) fairly blatant homoeroticism of Arabic literature. They, these such scholars will either reject it as the root because of its homoeroticism and claim that any homoeroticism in Western tradition is actually just homosocial bonding. They're just like gal pals or like comrades. They're just Guys who are really good friends and they love each other and they're just like best bros. Super duper hetero bonding. Yes. Yes. It's not gay. They're just really good friends. It's two dudes sitting in a hot tub six feet apart. (laughs) Hashtag no homo. Hashtag no homo. That's literally what they'll do. Yeah. Or they will allow for Arabic influence but only after (laughs) – this is actually – I kind of – 
love this because it's so ridiculous. So they will allow for Arabic influence, but only after homoerotic poems or stories are recast as actually heterosexual allegories (laughs) or like literary cliches devoid of homoerotic substance. So for example, John J. Perry from an essay in 1941 says, quote, among the Arabs, public opinion required that if the beloved was a woman, she must, for decency's sake, be spoken of as a man and referred to by masculine pronouns, adjectives, and adverbs. This alleged Arabic convention of encoding a heterosexual poem with a, as a homosexual poem may account for the troubadour's practice of male poets addressing his lady as his lord. Sure, Jan. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that gay thing, that's actually just, that's just an allegory for straight people. I didn't know that homosexuals went to our school. <laughs> just like, I, I love it's, it. Like, I really do just like find it delightfully ridiculous that the answer yeah. is like, oh, no, 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 they're not really gay. They're like, they just, it's just, it's really straight. It's a, it's a metaphor for straight people. These two dudes in love with each other are just a metaphor for straight people. Oh yeah, yeah. This this woman who's you know who's who's speaking about her her lover, you know, must be doing it from the perspective of a man, right? Right. She's like because because this is the only way it can be. She has to bring this this male perspective in, right? You know, right, like, we saw we saw that in cloistered queers too. Or like with people try and make that same argument with Sappho. It's like, well, but literary convention at the time was for the male perspective. So if you have a female poet writing poems about ladies, she's clearly just pretending she's a man. Yo, oh, okay. Oh, or she's a lady who likes ladies. Like, it's really, you just, it's, it feels like doing cartwheels around the gay right honestly it reminds me of every episode of xena where they really try to like put as much gay shit in there as they can but they can't because of censors so they like have xena be in bruce campbell's body and kiss gabrielle because clearly that's how it goes right yeah that's a thing that happened oh my gosh (laughs) right or or like when in our egypt episode when when the archaeologists like find this tomb of like two Like two dudes in positions that reflect like marital customs, and they'll literally be like they're conjoined twins. I'm like, yeah, I, I, just like okay, you you're trying so hard, right? You're trying so hard to come up with the most anything that's not gay. Uh, yeah, so it's... hard to come up with the most uh, what? Is, oh God, what's the word? Like convoluted. Yes. There you go. Yeah, trying to come up with the most convoluted example just to avoid the homo. Right. They will do okay. anything to avoid the homo, including yeah. including saying that, that homoeroticism is actually just encoded heterosexuality, yeah. which is bullshit. We'll just say that. That's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, I mean, that specifically was talking about male homosexuality. So what about queer female experience? So the author that I'm going to quote, they are someone that comes up again and again and again. They seem to be the most prolific author on, you know, lesbianism and queer female experience in medieval Arab Arabic literature. So if we don't specifically cite them, you can assume it's probably Sahar Amr because Mm -hmm. she's everywhere. Um, All of the best stuff come from her. So she says, if this myth of Western heterosexuality has impeded since the 12th century any clear understanding either of East-West relations in the Middle Ages or of the literary expression of male homosexual desire in medieval French literature, it has completely erased the literary manifestation and literary lineage of lesbian sexuality. So what that means is, is that in the 
like Western, specifically, she's talking specifically French courtly love tradition. There are still, we can still see some of the male homoeroticism in that. Just, it's just kind of either encoded as heterosexuality or understood as being, you know, just incidental because these are just dudes who are really good friends. But there's still a little bit of that left. But for her, almost everything of the queer female experience has been lost in the translation from even within the courtly love tradition from the Arabo-Islamic tradition into the courtly love tradition. So she talks about levels of erasure, the first level being the purposeful destruction of woman-loving woman texts by their society, which may or may not have happened. We just don't know. Like this, these are things that could have happened in history. If those things were destroyed, that would be a first level erasure, specifically destroying anything that reflects queer female experience. The second level erasure would be the lack of critical attention to any surviving texts given by modern scholarship, which is a problem. As And it's a problem that will come up again and again, even in our own research. Like when we were looking into the literary traditions in China, we found some stuff on queer female experience. And some of that is a lack of original sources, but some of it is also a lack of attention paid by modern scholarship to the sources that actually exist. There is a, a huge focus in academia when it comes to talking about queer historical experience on male homosexuality and not a lot of attention given to female homosexuality. And again, some of that is lack of resources, but some of it is also just, honestly, most of the people in academia are dudes. Yep. And and if they're interested in queer Dude, history at dudes all- Dudes want to hear about dudes. They want to write about dudes. And you don't have a lot of scholarship focused on queer female experience. So that's second level of erasure. The third level of erasure that Amr talks about is the lack of scholarship addressing the cross-cultural context of the representation of gender and female sexuality. So Arabic, Islamic women specifically, women-loving women specifically, have been elided even more so than her Western counterpart. So there's just this focus on like the Western experience of homosexuality. And even in the courtly love tradition itself, what we have surviving in Western literature is going to get focus mm -hmm. um, from predominantly Western scholars, which means that they're not going to pay any attention to what may have been left out by the Western tradition when it's adapting or, you know, taking things from the Arabo-Islamic tradition, which means editing out queer female experience specifically. So you have like these multiple levels of erasure going on, even in this like cross-cultural influence from the Arabo-Islamic tradition into the courtly love tradition, that they're kind of trying to tone down a lot of the homosexual, like the homoeroticism from the male side and basically almost entirely leaving out queer female experience, which means that we don't get access to, you know, what we just, we lose sight of the Arabo-Islamic queer women because, you know, Western white males are going to be focusing on gay male experience in the Western tradition mm -hmm. rather than, yep. <laughs> than yeah. like the queer female experience in the Islamic tradition. So that's part of why we wanted to do this episode. Exactly. So yeah, with that, you know, just a word of warning on the male gaze and perspective that we're going to experience in a lot of these writings. So like Gretchen was saying, most medieval Arabo-Islamic literature was, surprise, surprise, written by men. So it's important to remember that even if a character is female or an anecdote is written with a female narrator or even came from a female quote author, the cis male perspective kind of always 
dominates the text, including, you know, organization, which can determine how, like, important the issue was perceived to be in society. For example, most of, many of the literary works display, uh, display a descending social hierarchy actually in the text, so with more, like, socially important stories and issues in the front and lesser toward the back. And a lot of things on women and children tend to be found towards the back. So that's right. just, you know, disclaimer, we're going to be talking about all these things, but kind of hard to escape a male gaze right. in we this can't, conversation. Yeah. Even, we're taking it back. Right, yeah. Because even if we have more access to queer female experience in the Arabo-Islamic literary tradition than we have in the Western one, it's still filtered through a male gaze. So some of even the anecdotes are kind of like, ooh. Look, so, Tattoo may have been super duper fake lesbians from a male producer, but they were still valuable to me as a young queer. <laughs> right, right. But we just yeah. want to acknowledge that that is, that is a situation that we're dealing with mm -hmm. here. But first, we want to bring up our ba -ba -ba -da words of the week. Woohoo! Words of the week. I'm going to let Gretchen pronounce these because <laughs> she knows more Arabic than me, which is 0% <laughs> that I know Arabic. And I don't want to butcher things. So uh, <laughs> the words of the week this week are sihak. And ziraf. So yeah. the Arabic term for male homosexuality is liwat, which Lee brought up earlier, which comes from the verbal stem lata, which means to stick to something. Um, but this is not used for women. This is not the word that is used for queer female experience. The verb, the verbal stem used for that is sihak, or one of its derivatives, sahk or musahaka, for example. And the, the verbal stem sahak means to pound, bruise, efface, render something soft. It's often translated as rubbing and can refer to love between women or to solitary female masturbation. Specifically, the context is talking about sexuality, sexual experiences between women. The best translation is probably tribidism rather than, you know, something more generic that it was specifically like tribidism. Much, yeah. much like, you know, mirror polishing gang in China and right. – What's her name? Um, Layla Rupp, who who writes yep. sophistries, which we've brought up in the past, that most traditions, if they're looking at like love between women, focus on this tribidism, focus on this this rubbing, to rub, to pound, various words right. in various languages that all go upon this idea of, you know, I guess, just scissoring through. D scissoring right. through the centuries. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but like, I want to write that book now. Scissoring through <laughs> yes. the centuries. All right. So that's your NaNoWriMo book this yes. year. Yes. Scissoring through the centuries. Um, so yeah. So according to one source, um, Sahakiat or Sahikat was a term for like a self-declared lesbian or tribade. How do you pronounce this next one? This Hakak. 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 Uh, sometimes used, which, you know, means rubbing. Um, so you'll hear us mention these a lot. And you'll see these all throughout our sources. And then we have another one, which is zirach, uh, which is meaning someone who is witty, elegant, graceful, charming. This is a character archetype in the abab genre, which we're going to be talking about. And it's someone who is often then shown demonstrating wit and verbal skills. So, or as as we've seen them referenced in in other sources, like courtly lady loving ladies, basically. Mm -hmm. So sophisticated queer ladies. So in in poet um, Shihab al Din Ahmad Al Tafashi's work, who we'll come back to a lot. 
He records that women who practice tribadism use this to refer to themselves. So, quote, if they say so-and-so is a Zarifa, it is known among them that she is a tribade. So. <laughs> okay, so. like, I I really want it to be a cunnilingus joke. <laughs> because cause, um, cause Ziraf is like a character archetype that means, like, the cunning, the witty, cunning, smart person someone who's like linguist. cutting with right like i know it's not but i really really want it to be a cuddlingus joke because we can, we because can, it's right cross there that bridge we can make that i'm just gonna decide it is because yeah you know i know that they're referring specifically to like tribadism but i but it's like to me i'm like it's right there the word means if like early cunning. Imp- look if the- early imperial china can bring us uh duishi yeah and they know about shared eating you know there you know people knew what was going on here as well right so so yeah it's a it's a cunnilingus joke i've decided this is a cunnilingus joke about women <laughs> about queer women i've decided yes so yeah that when altafashi is using this word zarifa it seems to be a specialized use of the term within a social group but one with positive implications because the ziraf was like cunning, sophisticated, graceful, charming. And he seems to be recording that this is their own term for themselves. This mm-hmm. is what women are using to refer to themselves as, and it's a positive thing. So I think that's awesome that we have here an example, even if it's from a male perspective, he's commenting on women use this word to refer to themselves if they are, you know, Women loving women, they talk about themselves as being Zarifa, which is like cunning and sophisticated and witty and smart. And I just think that's great. One, that they chose that term, that they're like, we're the sophisticated ladies because we like (laughs) other ladies. And that he was willing to record it. So anyway, I think that's awesome. Yeah. So refined courtly ladies. Yes. Who, you know, they apparently adorned their homes with like poetry, which was sculpted on the doors and on the windows. Like just write all your gay love poetry all over your house. Right. It's fantastic. And they like, you know, they have clothing with poetic verses embroidered onto them with gold and precious stones. And so, you know, they just a like big old, big old gay commune of sophisticated ladies. Yes. Sophisti- I'm a sophisticated lady. I want to go to there. Yes. And it may be that an observation from Sharif al-Idris Idrisi, from who lived from 1100 to 1166, CE is relevant in this case and he says there are also women who are more intelligent than the others they possess many of the ways of men so that they resemble them even in their movements the manner in which they talk and their voice such women would like to be the active partner and they would like to be superior to the man who makes this possible for them such a woman does not shame herself either if she seduces whom she desires if she has no inclination he cannot force her to make love this makes it difficult for her to submit to the wishes of men and brings her to lesbian love Most of the women with these characteristics are to be found among the educated and elegant women, the scribes, the Quran readers, and female scholars. She too smart to be straight. (laughs) Basically, is what he's saying. (laughs) Smart ladies. You're too pretty to be a lesbian. Yeah, well, I'm also too smart to be straight. Yes! Too smart to be straight. Oh, I like that. Um... So yeah, so going into this, knowing that, you know, mostly what we're going to be talking about is tribadism and, you know, going into queer lady love in Arabo-Islamic writing. Um, So as with the Judeo-Christian tradition, like we mentioned before, women loving women activity is not spoken of in the Quran. 
likely due to the patriarchal norms where women were perceived as not having sexual agency, even if their sexual urges were acknowledged, right? So they're, like you just heard in that quote, they're passive partners in sex, and therefore the idea of them having agency with each other didn't make sense because they couldn't take the active role. But we find it very, very prevalent in the wider textual universe. So we mentioned Altafashi, and one of his most prominent works is translated as The Delights of the Heart by What is Not to be Found in Any Book, or um, in one of my sources, I also saw it as The Promenade of Hearts of What mm. is Not to be Found in Any Book. So I kind of, I like both of those. If you want to, if you want to say the Arabic, Gretchen, you can go ahead. It's Nujat al-Albab Fima Ya La Yujad Fi Khitab. And that is... There you go. That is from 1253 CE. Mm -hmm. So Al-Tafashi was the son of a law expert, and he was one himself. And I think he was born in Tunisia. Yep. He traveled extensively, like other Muslim scholars at the time, and authored a lot of books, including ones on geography, precious stones, and medicine. And so Delights of the Hearts isn't an erotic manual, which is a, a genre that flourished in medieval Muslim literature, but it's more a collection of like entertaining stories, some on sexuality and sexual practices. Yep. So the whole, the genre is called abab, which is designed to be edifying as well as entertaining. So it mixed Quranic verses with poetry, um, hadith, which are sayings of the prophet, plus philological and other materials. So kind of an intertextual exercise in mastery of both oral and written tradition. So mm -hmm. mixing all of these things together. Right. So Tafashi's book is an abab on sexuality and sexual deviance. He has a, a fairly robust section at the end like we said at the end, about tribidism, preceded by anal sex with women and followed by effeminate men. I guess that's how the ranking goes. I guess so. Sorry. Sorry, effeminate men. Yeah. We still value you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and it has this, like, praise-blame structure, which is very common to Abab materials, and I thought was really interesting. Um, we don't have to go into it in detail, but I was fascinated reading about it, which <laughs> – so this was just, like, a, a general – structure that was used in this particular genre, genre, as you would say, like in praise of this particular thing and in blame of it, kind of pros and cons, but without firmly coming down as either, you know, condemnatory or saying this is something you have to do. It's It really is more like a pro and con way of dealing with it. But by placing queer female experience within that structure, it normalizes and even mainstreams female homosexuality into the larger literary tradition of the above genre because this is something that would have been presented as like, here are the pros and cons of ladies loving ladies rather than saying like, this is evil, this is wrong, this is bad, don't do it, it's gross. It's just like one thing. We can have a conversation about, you know, the pros and cons of this. So I thought it was important to situate that so we understand even in some of his more like uh, – less positive associations, he's not condemning female homosexuality, he's just talking about it. Um, yeah, and he mixes, like, medical lore with, like, anecdotes and poetry, though, again, there is kind of heterosexist vision about this. He's a presumably, you know, he's not a queer woman when he's talking about mm -hmm. this. So let's get into some anecdotes. I think these are fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so an important man said one day to an impudent one, when the topic of tributism came up, quote, By God, I want to know how women practice sex between them. The impudent man replied, If you would like to know that, enter your house a bit at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so things to know about this linguistically. 
Uh, the word for want, when when the uh, important man says, I want to know, is ashtahi, which is desire or craving. It's like a carnal appetite, a kind of like voyeuristic lust. Like he's saying like, dude, I want to know what they're doing. Um, the word- <laughs> I like your horny dude voice. Well, yeah, he's a horny dude. He wants to know what ladies do when they're on their own. Um the word for like practice sex between them is tutasahak, which as you'll you might recognize the sihak root in that, uh, which connotes mutuality. So he's not talking about masturbation. He's not saying, I want to know what a lady does when her husband's not home. It's I want to know what ladies do together, suggesting like a mutual sexual partnership between the women that he's talking about. But my my like the implication is that the man's wife is having sex with other women and all the husband has to do is just like go into the catch house her. slowly and catch her unawares. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I just love this. Yeah. So according to one author who was talking about this anecdote, looking behind the anecdote is the possibility that all women are enjoying female same-sex activity in the privacy of their quarters. The curious husband need only observe the women most easily accessible to him, his wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So the idea that, you know, like the wife is an, is an object for male voyeurism, but at the same time... It's a commentary on, like, well, heterosexuality is kind of boring. Like, when the husband's gone, the wife's going to find somebody else to diddle, and that's going to be another lady. lady. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, one man was told that his wife was having sex with other women, and he responded, As long as she frees me from any sexual obligation towards her, let her do what she wants. I mean, I feel like like he's got some other stuff going on, too. Like, I don't know, as long as I don't have to do anything... You know, let her have her fun. Um. I just love that that's his response is like, yeah. dude, as long as I don't have to be involved, as long as she doesn't need anything from me, like, fine. Let let her have all the ladies she wants. What a good husband. What a what a good husband. He supports her. <laughs> yeah. One, um, one, one poetess actually declared, I drank wine for love of flirting and I shifted towards Sahak for fear of pregnancy. <laughs> all right. I mean, cool. Decent motivation. Right. Like I don't want to get pregnant, so I'll just I'll just be with other ladies. I mean that that is a that is a benefit if you don't want children. You don't yeah. have to worry about that if you if you are a cis woman with other cis women. You don't have to worry about getting pregnant. Yeah. Another anecdote, the final one for now. A certain Mazid was told your wife practices tributism. He replied, "Yes, I ordered her to do that." He was then asked, "But why?" He replied, "Because it is softer on her labia." purer for the opening of her vulva and more worth when the penis approaches her that she know its superiority okay (laughs) on the one hand like there's that's not all bad like he acknowledges the tribadism whether it's masturbation in this context or sex with other women he acknowledges that it is gentler and more comfortable for women like good looking out good right that's it's good to acknowledge that it's also kind of gross also kind of gross yeah yeah the that you know that same thing that we discovered in medieval in in the middle ages in in europe that we talked about the idea of female homosexuality being a prelude to heterosexuality that they were practicing for the men right so it's it's not an isolated incident yeah right yeah so yeah which i mean this is reinforced by another anecdote where a tribad responds to a question after her wedding about how her wedding night went with i have been yearning for meat for 20 years and was only satisfied with it yesterday 
So it's yeah, it's just like the centrality of the phallus. Yeah, and the male gaze. Yeah. There's also a story of another woman when confronted with a large, like, the the text literally says a man large of penis. Like, the only thing that matters is he's got a big dick. And she thinks to herself- Katharina Hetzeldorfer's dildo is bigger. Yeah, probably. Right? Was it as big as, was it as big as his arm? (laughs) (laughs) So she responds with, how is it with the likes of this pestle in the world have I been beating my own clothing with my hands? So she gets married. Like, okay, man, I've been masturbating, but what I really want is that dick. Um... So yeah, there's there's some good stuff and there's also some like I mean it's still phallocentric. Mm-hmm. Male phallocentric and but not in like though I don't know. I like the I like the euphemism of beating my clothing with my own hands. I also enjoy doing that, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Yeah. Elsewhere though, Altafashi seems to imply that tribeds are more than a passing phase into heterosexuality. Right. In the introduction to this section of his work, he mentions that they love each other like men do, or more. They spend a great deal of money on each other, like a man on his female beloved. He also, you know, he he writes about how women-loving women are, according to Amr, said to have formed groups, to have held meetings, and to have had led schools in which they taught other lesbians how best to achieve pleasure. Um, So again, talking about those, um, the Zarif. And I, you know... I just like this this quote from there's like a like a Western writer who like was doing a survey of sexual customs in the Middle East, but specifically reports that like there was a woman who was teaching every girl in the sapphic sciences, which is orientalist and gross, but I also want to use sapphic sciences from now on. So I'm taking that back. Yes. Yeah, we can we can reclaim that sapphic science. We can reclaim that. We can do that. You, do, you, do you have a ma- – are you a master of the sapphic sciences? <laughs> um, I have a doctorate in the sapphic, in the sapphic sciences. sciences. Oh. Mm. Um, but yeah, Altafashi even even discusses, discusses sexual positions and the entire act itself. And Gretchen okay. is going to read a full, wonderful quote that we found in Amr's writing. Right. Uh, so that, quoting, yeah. quoting Altafashi. Right. And this is where we get part of the title of our episode. The tradition between women in the game of love necessitates that the lover places herself above and the beloved underneath, unless the former is too light or the second too developed. And in this case, the lighter one places herself underneath and the heavier one on top because her weight will facilitate the rubbing and will allow the friction to be more effective. This is how they proceed. The one that must stay underneath lies on her back, stretches out one leg, and bends the other while leaning slightly to the side, therefore offering her opening, her vagina, wide open. Meanwhile, the other lodges her bent leg in her groin, puts the lips of her vagina between the lips that are offered for her, and begins to rub the vagina of her companion in an up and down and down and up movement that jerks the whole body. This operation is dubbed the saffron massage, because this is precisely how one grinds saffron on the cloth when dyeing it. The operation must focus each time on one lip in particular, the right one, for example, and then the other. The woman will then slightly change position in order to apply better friction to the left lip, and she does not stop acting in this manner until her desires and those of her partner are fulfilled. I assure you that it is absolutely useless to try to press the two lips together at the same time, because the area from which pleasure comes would then not be exposed. Finally, let us note that in this game, the two partners may be aided by a little willow oil scented with musk. Don't forget lube. Yeah, don't don't forget your lube. It's so technical. I know. Like, what? 
it's kind of voyeuristic, but also like it's you better than the, the manual, like I guess. weird shrugging of like I don't I don't know what women can do can they even have sex like here is exactly how you should have sex as as a yeah. woman. He he doesn't include moral condemnations. The the no. blame is more of an impracticality or negative aspect than re- religious condemnation. So like, you know, it's I don't know. It's like when, it, when he when in his blame section, I mean, I included that in the outline because like in his blame section, it's not like this is morally wrong. It's more just like this is impractical, and maybe women actually secretly do just want dick, um, yeah. rather than like. This is morally wrong and gross. It's like, well, maybe maybe they just do it because they don't know that penises are better. Yeah. I don't really know. Like, I, I read that whole passage and was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Like, <laughs> like one, I really love saffron massage. Like, yeah. I just, I really enjoy that as a euphemism. <laughs> but also, like, how does he know? And that's so specific. And is there a spices emoji? We're taking that now. Sure. Is there? Yeah, maybe. I don't know, but we can take one. And just, yeah. like his whole like, I assure you, it is absolutely useless <laughs> to try and press the two lips together at the same time. Like, like, like okay, buddy. Like, dude, how do you know? <laughs> you can't. You can't absolutely assure me that it's useless because because you're not a. You don't have a vagina. Don't tell me if that's useful or not. So yeah, um, we also go into a bunch of martial metaphors for women yes. and women activity so yes. back to thigh fencing yeah so the the primary sources for this discussion are joami al laza is, mm-hmm. is that it yeah um which is the encyclopedia of pleasure by abdul hassan ali ibn nasr al-katib who is considered the earliest example uh, which is considered the earliest example of homoerotic compilations there's also the book of metonymic expressions of the literatures and elusive phrases of the eloquent by iraqi religious judge abu abbas ahmad ibn muhammad al-jarjani both of these are from the 10th to 12th centuries where they were composed mm-hmm. and we have examples like the shield as a, a shield as the vulva so from the encyclopedia of pleasure your vulva became like a shield the penis was referred to as both lance and sword we've seen that even even as late as uh magnus hirschfeld yep joust you know therefore functions as a metaphor for love making continuing with that that lance in the book of metonymic uh, expressions the quote they manifest a war in which there is no spear thrusting but only fending off a shield with a shield so it's there's sh- that shield banging there's the shield banging Woo! yeah Woo! <laughs> yep yeah. or uh also from the book of metonymic expressions they invented a tournament in which there is no use of lance hitting only with great noise one shield against the other or no, that's from Altafashi's book. Yeah, that's from the Altafashi. So yep. yeah, it's it's wild. And then we get into like then we get into our discussion about weird heat stuff. Yeah. Um this this <laughs> is very definition. strange. Yeah. Oh my so God. the God, medieval like no matter where you go, medieval discussions on medical treaties are just whack. Like, I don't know what the fuck doctors were going on about in the middle ages about medicine but it's weird so there's there's this medical definition of women living women activity quoted in the encyclopedia of pleasure by a famous uh ninth century muslim philosopher al-kindi which question would you like to to sure. say this quote lesbianism is due to a vapor which condensed generates in the labia heat and an itch which only dissolve and become cold through friction and orgasm 
When friction and orgasm take place, the heat turns into coldness because the liquid that a woman ejaculates in lesbian intercourse is cold, whereas the same liquid that results from sexual union with men is hot. Heat, however, cannot be extinguished by heat. Rather, it will increase since it needs to be treated by its opposite. As coldness is repelled by heat, so heat is repelled by coldness. So basically, ladies who have sex with ladies have this burning itch in their labia that can only be like cooled by having sex with other women. Because like if they have sex with someone who has a penis, then it's only it's, then it's, it's only too gonna hot. make it worse. It's yeah. too hot for them. It's too hot yeah. for their for there's, their lady <laughs> genitals. It's so weird. And then there's also like there's also these these anecdotes from these physicians in the ninth century who thought that lesbianism was an inborn state that was actually caused by the mother consuming certain foods and then passing it through the breast milk. So this 9th century physician, Johanna Ibn uh, Ibn Masawai, yes, says, quote, Lesbianism results when a nursing woman eats celery, rocket, melilote leaves, and the flowers of a bitter orange tree. When she eats these plants and suckles her child, they will affect the labia of her suckling and generate an itch which the suckling will carry through her future life. So, aka the idea of female homosexuality is thought of as depicted as innate and lifelong, but also just, like, crotch itch? So, like, yay, lesbianism is something that you're born with. And then it's innate and you have, you know, it's something that is happening throughout the rest of your life, but also that it's created through like being like your mama ate some celery and now your crotch itches and now you gay. <laughs> like what's happening? My also, like it brings celery. me back to the whole like lettuce, celery thing and eat like, I don't I Just why these particular foods? I'm super curious know. about that. I don't know. Celery? I mean, celery kind of oozes when you cut it, right? It could be back like that, like that, Maybe? you know, variant of lettuce in Egypt. Like rocket is kind of, is like a lettuce. I assume melilote. I don't know what melilote leaves are, but like. Neither do I. Bitter orange flower. I don't know. I just like, it makes me think of that SNL sketch about cowbell, except it's like, I got a fever and the only solution is more cowbells. Like, I got an itch. And the, <laughs> the, only-, and the only solution is lesbianism is lesbianism oh god uh, oh, that's um, great. there's also uh altafashi also talks about the necessity of breath and moaning so like sex between women regularly paid attention to quote this music of love that the breath produces as it escapes the throat and passes through the nostrils these some he noisy cites- bitches yeah, he cites advice from uh, a lesbian mother to her daughter. Make sure to always accompany the back and forth movements, which you know well with the sweet music of breath you exhale from your nostrils. He also said something about like this this woman telling her daughter to make sure that she wiggles lasciviously. Ooh. Which, okay. Sure. Um, also speaks of wheezing, panting, purring, murmurs, and heartbreaking sighs, which I thought was nice and Aww. less gross. Yeah. I guess if you're gonna have, if you're a lady and you're having sex with a lady, it's got to be noisy. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it probably means you're enjoying yourself. So yeah, cool, cool beans. But the the interesting is that all 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 of these texts that we're talking about here likely influenced uh, Etienne Fougère's Livre des Manières, which is a French text from which we get some of our favorite metaphors for queer lady sex that Lee mentioned in our earlier episode, like joining shield to shield without a lance. You can see how that 
you know, would have been pretty much lifted directly from the Arabo Islamic tradition. They don't play at jousting. They do not need a tongue in their balancing act. Um, and they go at the game of thigh fencing one person at a time. Yeah, so we'll save, we'll save, you know, yeah. more of that for when we do a courtly love episode. But it's worth noting that all of this martial language came, you know, it's, it's unusual for French literature. Yep. And scholars have mused over it for some time going like, where is this coming from? This is not... The French really tradition, fitting yeah. with the tradition, Mm-mm. but it's it's very common in Arabic, uh, Arabic homoerotic literature. So it's you know clearly folks are just kind of lifting from one area to another. Right, right. So another thing we wanted to talk about was stories about cross dressing and same sex marriage, uh, mm-hmm. which come up in not the erotic poetry, but more in kind of the storytelling or liter- literature tradition. So women disguised as men is is a pretty common literary trope, both in France and, and other European countries and in Arabic literature in the Middle Ages. Just think of, you know, Jean d'Arc, where you have a woman dressing up as a knight and saving people. It's a, it's a fairly common trope. Arabic literature has several of its own real and fictional warrior women that are, you know, along the lines of Joan of Arc. You have uh, Princess Ayn al-Hayat, Queen al-Rabab, al-Qaeda, Gamra and Nitra. Aloof, the Princess Turban, and the female community in a story called Romance of Saif. And there's an entire 18th century poetry genre where the beloved dresses as a man and then, you know, meets a man and falls in love. And it's got these, you know, homoerotic undertones of like a dude who meets a dude who's actually a woman and falls in love. I mean, it's like Mulan. Like there, <laughs> there's this whole um, poetry genre that has that as a trope. But in, in these in most of those stories, homosexuality typically functions kind of in the second degree, um, as it's never really actualized or even addressed directly, either as, you know, male loving male or woman loving woman. Because, you know, in stories where the woman dresses up as a man and then meets a man and he falls in love with her, it's not actually like there's homoerotic undertones, but that's never actually actualized because it's like, oh, wait, she's a woman. Now it makes sense why I was in love with them. Actually, one of my favorite books when I was a child has that story involved in it. It's called Seven Daughters (laughs) and Seven Sons. Um, And it's like an Arabic, like it's taken from Arabic folklore. So that's from this tradition. But there actually is a genre of stories that combine cross-dressing women with same-sex marriage. And these are really interesting, um, especially if we're talking about the relationship between like the French versions and the Arabic versions. So the French tale Ide et Olive is a mid-13th century continuation of an earlier epic poem called Juan de Bordeaux. And it is very likely that this French tale draws on the Arabic story of Kamar al-Zaman and Princess Budur from the Thousand and One Nights. So, um, and it's interesting to compare them because we see how much more permissive and subversive the Arabic stories are than the French one. So in the Ide and Olive story... You have, you know, an infertile queen and a king pray to Mary. Then they have a daughter named Ide. And when the queen dies and Ide grows up, the king decides to marry her because she looks like his dead wife. I don't know why that's a trope in fairy tales. It's so weird to me. It's very Freudian. Yeah, it's it's just super weird. He's like, my wife is dead and my daughter, like my biological daughter looks exactly like my wife. So I should marry my biological daughter. Like, why? Who thinks that? Gross. But anyway, that's that's the background for the story. So Ide flees because 
you should. <laughs> she dresses as a knight and via various exploits ends up winning the favor of the king of Constantinople, who rewards her by marrying Ide to his daughter, Olive, because he doesn't know that Ide is actually a woman. So after the wedding, Ide like feigns sickness on the wedding night so that they don't have sex, but eventually tells her wife that she's a woman. Now this is overheard and Ide is sentenced to a public ritual bath to prove her gender. Because sure, God, of course, miraculously changes her into a man and an angel announces the imminent consumption of Ide and Olive's child now that Ide is a man. Um, so, um... Okie dokie. Right. <laughs> like, on the one hand, like, this story creates, like, an interesting space to critique social norms of gender and sexuality and social standing. Ide is dressing is cross-dressing and thus playing with gender as well as giving up her status as, you know, she's a princess, so she's royal. So she's giving up her status as well as, you know, living as a man. But all of these, like, all this space for question is, you know, eventually just resolved in favor of heteronormativity and social status because Ide is once again restored to her status as being royal, but this time as a man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, at the time, it may have been a subversive story within its literary tradition and culture. Like, we, we're not going to say that it's not subversive just because it resolves in a heteronormative way. Like, at the time, this may have been a subversive story because you're because you're allowing space for women to have a lot of agency, even if the woman eventually transitions and becomes a man. But what's really interesting is that the story it was likely based on is very different and much more positive for queer ladies. So this is the story of Kamal... Kamar al-Zaman and Princess Budur. And it's there's a long story beforehand, but here's the part of the story that, that's interesting for the Ide at Olive story. So after great resistance to marriage, Kamar and Budur eventually married through the intervention of magic and, and jinns being involved. And then they're immediately separated. So Budur takes, it, takes on the name of her lost husband, Kamar, and is successful disguising herself as her lost husband in part because she looks a lot like him. Physically. So she arrives at the Isle of Ebony and the king there forces her to marry his daughter, Hayat al-Nufus, who is, quote, the most virgin of the island. So this, you know, pure virginal woman. And eventually, Budur's true gender is revealed and the story ends with her reunited with her husband, Kamar, giving him Hayat as a second wife and the three of them live happily ever after. Doesn't sound that much more subversive, but then you get into the details. <laughs> All right, so... First thing to notice is that the cross-dressing element is very different. In the Arabic tale, it doesn't include a loss of social status because Budur is disguised as her husband, who was also of royal lineage. She's not, like, pretending to be someone of low, lower social class. So she doesn't need to, like, perform these extraordinary feats to regain the lost status that she, you know, the status she lost by fleeing. So this allows focus to shift entirely to like the erotic and sexual ambiguities that the cross-dressing heroine elicits in this marriage to another woman. It's also much more sexually explicit. Like the French <laughs> tale like goes out of its way to avoid any suggestion that the women made love. Ide like pretends to be sick to avoid having sex with her wife. Like in this version... They have sex. Here's a quote from the story. The servants made Hayat enter into the room where Boudour, daughter of King Royur, was sitting, and they closed the door on them. They lit candles and lights for them and spread their bed with silk sheets. Then Boudour entered into Hayat. Yeah. 
Um, well, it so, sounds like it's such a nice romantic uh, night with the I candles know. and the lights and their silk sheets. Yes, like the servants went out of their way to make it really romantic and sweet. Um, and they have sex. And then they spend the next two nights kissing, including kissing between the eyes and caressing. According to the Encyclopedia of Pleasure that we mentioned earlier, quote, kissing is the means by which sexual desire is aroused. Kissing becomes more effective when it is accompanied by biting, pinching, sucking, sighing, and hugging. It is then that both the man and the woman burn with sexual desire simultaneously. <laughs> kissing Jesus. is the penis's messenger to the vulva. Sorry. I just... Oh, oh, I find that amusing. It is also said that kissing is an essential part of sexual union. Kissing, like lubrication, facilitates sexual union. Coition without kissing is imperfect. Also note that, like, kissing between the eyes was an Arabic strategy for speeding up a woman's orgasm. Like, this is something we get in other, like, sexual manuals. So Don't forget foreplay, folks. Right. Like, so when you have in the text that they spent the next two nights, like, kissing and kissing between the eyes and caressing, like, they have in sex... You're not going to just have foreplay. Like, why else would you have foreplay? So they've got like three nights of Bourdieu making love to her wife. Apparently her wife not knowing that she's actually a woman. Because only on the third night does Bourdieu reveal her gender. I don't know how this works, but it happens in the story. That like only on the, like, Hyatt doesn't find out that her, that her spouse is a woman until the third night. So maybe they use a dildo. I don't know. It doesn't say. So, and she, Boudou reveals this by speaking in her natural feminine voice and showing her wife first her vulva and then her breasts. Um, in the, in the Ide at Olive story, like, Ide bears her breasts, not her vulva. She just bears her breasts and is like, look, I'm a lady. Boudou is like, hey, look at my vulva. Oh, also, I have breasts. <laughs> um, like, okay. So, but not only does Hyatt not object... Or react with the panic, like Olive does. She is actually, quote, pleased with what she sees and keeps the secret to herself for, like, most of the rest of the story. She doesn't tell anybody that her wife is actually, that her spouse is actually a woman. And this is followed by a description of their mutual laughter, their fellowship, their sexual play. Like, they, after this, they enter into this, like, same, you know, this, like, partnership and intimacy together and even to the point that like to assuage her father's fear in her continued you know virginity Hyatt actually stages a scene where she covers herself with chicken blood screams then hides the chicken and calls her family in to quote witness her defloration oh my god like she's amazing she fakes getting deflowered to hide her wife's identity um According to Amr, ironically, the very moment that the two lovers are portrayed as maintaining heteronormativity is also the very space where binary sexual relations are exposed and where the very notion of stable identities is challenged. In the Arabic tale, the exhibition of the bloody cloth in the context of a homosexual marriage reveals that heterosexuality is critiqued, denaturalized, and animalized. After all, marriage is legitimized here not by the virginal blood of a bride, but that of a lowly farm animal, the chicken. <laughs> Meanwhile, Boudreau and Hyatt are allowed to continue their intimate life together, inadvertently blessed this time by the entire social system. Wow. <laughs> I love this oh story God, so much. Oh, that's amazing. Much. Ugh. 
I don't know whether I like Boudoir or Hyatt better. I want to I want to marry both of them even though they're fictional characters. Can I just be they're, their third they're wife? They're a unit. I'm gonna I'm gonna be their third wife. There you go. So <laughs> even the, the like seemingly patriarchal polygamous ending has ambiguities. So in the E Day and Olive Tale, like E Day is transformed into a man. And now it's now it's sanctioned because you have a man and a woman together. Rather than staying in separate households, it was common in if you had polygamy, if a man had multiple wives in the Arabo Islamic culture, typically the, the different wives would live in different households. But rather than stay in separate households, Budur insists on sharing a household. And one of Budur's lines, which is one night for her, one night for me, while it on the surface implies the sharing of, you know, their mutual husband now, Kamar, is like, she gets one night with him, I get one night with him. It also implies a sharing of each other. So this may actually be a story about polyamory mm -hmm. rather than polygamy. Where the French Ide is forced back into the heterosexual framework via transformation into a man, Boudoura is allowed to retain her homosexual intimacy with Hyatt, even despite the imposition of a heterosexual and polygamous marriage. And... Like that just, I love that story so much and now I want to read it because I think it's delightful. Yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> I feel like that story is ripe for like adaptation into a, like a genre novel. Ooh. Someone Maybe could, that's like, your NaNoWriMo. <laughs> yeah, so make that into, like a, like retell that story. Someone needs to retell that story. I don't know whether I'm the right person to retell that story because I'm not Islamic nor am I Middle Eastern. So I think that story would probably be better coming from someone in that cultural tradition. But I mean, somebody do it, please. Someone please do it because I want a modern adaptation of Buddha and Hyatt and Kamara. I guess he can come to you, <laughs> but mostly just Buddha and Hyatt. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, before before we end off, we want to talk about some people examples. Yeah. So, Lee, do you want to talk us about the first lesbian couple? Yes, yeah. The, quote, first lesbian couple, the story of Hind and Al-Zarka. So, according to many anecdotes in the Arab literary tradition, the origin of lesbianism is actually often traced back 40 years before the emergence of male homosexuality to the story of an interfaith love affair between an Arab woman and a Christian woman in pre-Islamic Iraq. Um, so, the story is told in the Encyclopedia of Pleasure, like the others, and so it features two women. It's Hind bint al-Numan, the Christian daughter of the last Lakmin king of Hira in the 7th century, and Hind bint al-Kus al-Iyadia, uh, who's known as al-Zarka from Yamama in Arabia and is known as the first lesbian in Arab history. So it's quoted in the Encyclopedia of Pleasure, she, Hind, was so loyal to Al-Zarka that when the latter died, she cropped her hair, wore black clothes, rejected worldly pleasures, vowed to God that she would lead an ascetic life until she passed away, and, as a result, she built a monastery which was named after her on the outskirts of Kufa. When she died, she was buried at the monastery gate. Her loyalty was then an example for poets to write about. There are also other women who continued to shed tears on their loved on their beloved ones' graves until they passed away. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so like these these stories give reason to believe that Sach and Sachikat were thought to be more than just a medical condition and a sexual practice, right? right. These stories of Sachikat lesbians were considered as evidence of greater love and loyalty and devotion of women loving women compared to men's attachment to women. We saw that we saw that in our China episode as well. Yes. Like when we talked about like the um like the the dancer who was mm -hmm. like in love with 
you know, her, you know, fellow actor. Like, and how, like, like, I can do this better than you. Right. We're, like, held up as the examples of, like, this is how you do love, folks. Yeah. And, like, even Nasser even cites the following verses that were written from an unnamed poet talking about um, Hind's love for Al-Zarka as being, Oh, Hind, you are truer to your word than men. Oh, the difference between your loyalty and theirs. Run the world, girls. Oh my gosh. Like, I just, uh, thi- yeah, this is how you do love. Look at this example. It's, right. oh, I just, I mean, like, it's it's such a short anecdote. And there's even, like, in that same text, there's, like, 12 or 13 other listings of, like, these lesbian couples that are, like, and they, I couldn't find a lot of details of them, but they have really amazing names. We don't have time to go into them, so we'll include them in our show notes. But just, I love, like, this, just this being the, all right, this is the first example of this great, great love between women. Mm-hmm. Hinden uh, I love it. That's yeah. beautiful. And then lastly... So- yeah, lastly, we uh, just wanted to talk a little bit about Walada bint al-Mustafki, who is mostly because they might come up if you're researching, you know, if you're looking into queer female experience in in medieval Islam, you might come across them because they're sometimes called the Arab Sappho. Or the Sappho of Spain. Yes, too. the Sappho of Spain. Yeah. So Walada lived from 994 to 1091, was the daughter of Muhammad III of Cordoba, the last of the Umayyad Cordoban caliphs. Her father was assassinated in 1026, and she inherited his properties and used them to open a literary hall and palace in Cordoba where she offered classes in poetry and the arts of love to women of all social classes. She was intelligent, cultured, one of the few women of the time to participate in poetry battles where poets would compete to, like, finish an incomplete poem. So she was very, very smart, very intelligent, wealthy. Um, she, 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 was, she was considered one of those zarifs. Yeah, yeah. So she met a man named Ibn Zaydun at one such poetry competition. He was a poet and nobleman from a rival clan to her, so they had to keep the relationship a secret. Eight of the nine poems that we have preserved from her are about her relationship with him. He apparently also had male lovers, and they eventually split after his relationship with a black lover. It's kind of unclear whether or not that was whether or not that meant a a slave girl or if this was just like a literary trope of the time. It is kind of a trope that um, you would have like the black lover and it would cause problems. And so it's kind of unclear exactly what happened, but they split. And after splitting, Walida had a relationship with Vizier Ibn Abdus, who is one of Zaydun's rivals, uh, who then had him imprisoned and all of his wealth seized. So, you know. Petty, petty, petty. Petty, petty, petty. Yep. Um, Walid never married Abdus, but he did protect her until his death. So the reason why she is called, you know, the Sappho of Spain or the, the Arab Sappho is there. One of her students, uh, a woman named Muhya bint al-Tayani, who was the daughter of a merchant, wrote these kind of tongue-in-cheek, positive, like satirical poems about Walida. And so many Western scholars, and at least one Arab scholar, um, have argued that Muhya and Walida were actually lovers, mm-hmm. but that Walida's love poems about her student were repressed. Ibn Bassam cites one line of poetry by Walida in his classic Ad Dakhira fi Mahasin Ahi al Jazira. And the lines are I give my cheek to whoever loves me. And I give my kiss to anybody who desires it. And this, you know, Ibn Bassam actually then uses this line to like criticize Walada for like flaunting her pleasures 
and that, you know, that she was open about, you know. Well, and speaking of the idea that she's flaunting her pleasures, that that line and apparently another one, the um, God, uh, by God, I am fit for greatness and stride along with great pride. These two were actually apparently um, she had them like we like we mentioned with the Zarifs, uh, had them embroidered in gold thread on her coat. Oh, yeah. So, mm. so th- this theory that she had a relationship with her student and that these lines about giving my cheek to whoever loves me and my kiss to anybody who desires it, that these are like subtle clues to her sexuality, that is the source of the moniker of the Arab Sappho. But I mean, it has to be said that we, if she had love poems written to women, we have none of them. Mm-hmm. Like we have no actual sources that can either confirm or fully deny her sexuality in any particular way. We know she had two relationships with men. We don't know exactly how deep the nature of those relationships were. We do know one of her female students wrote these kind of tongue-in-cheek satirical poems for her, which Walida had actually done the same for her first lover. So there's, you know, potential there for that being kind of a tongue-in-cheek way to flirt i guess (laughs) like i'm a poet i write satirical poems about the people that i'm with but we don't know either way but we also just thought it worth bringing up because given that she does also have like these the zarifa kind of style embroidering on her clothing and that was known for you know for queer women that it's possible she could Mm be we're not saying yes or no we just we're just saying we don't know. There's some intriguing clues and it would be cool. The but idea she's... of medieval Islamic Islamic world courtliness and like courtly, courtly love were not expressly heterosexual practices. So the right. very fact that she is in this world says something that may indicate there's something less than entirely heterosexual going on. Right. It's when we get into conversations about vaqueros and, and you know, we talked about pirates, like maybe situation gayness sort of thing it's like hey you're in this community you're doing these things i guess why not yeah (laughs) i'm here i'm queer why not yeah which is a a joke that we know and you guys don't know yet because that's for a future episode it's for a future episode (laughs) so so yeah uh, final takeaways yeah as we wrap up here Mm -hmm. uh arabic arabic literature had some pretty badass euphemisms for gay lady love yeah. Um, and just love in general. Pretty mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. And like as with the Chinese literary tradition, there's so much we're missing in a Western context and, you know, the Islamic cultures themselves because they, they're they not aware of their own history. Like so much has been erased, which to me, one of the biggest takeaways from this discussion, other than just like, this is super interesting and I love it. And now I want Hyatt and, and Budur. I want a modern adaptation <laughs> of Hyatt and Budur is this question of eraser. Um, and really what, what summarized it for me was, was again from Amr. And she says, despite the access of the West to Arabic homoerotic literature, there has been, because of the subject matter, a process of selective borrowing or perhaps even at times of outright violent silencing in the material that was available. Those aspects of love and desire that dealt with male, but even more so female homosexuality, were more readily rejected, especially from the 12th century onward, with the increasing tendency towards heteronormativity. Literary devices, metaphors, and images describing male homosexuality were integrated more readily than those dealing with lesbianism, even though the latter material was as available to the Western public as the former. 
One might say that some form of censorship took place at some level, though it is hard to pinpoint at which one, at the level of the translators, of the poets themselves, or of the scribes. What is evident, however, is the erasure of lesbian Arabic homoerotic desire from the Western love tradition, traceable in so many other ways to various Arabic and Andalusian sources. In a period as preoccupied as was late 12th century France, with the elaboration of regimes of sexual repression, social order, and heteronormativity, despite the prevalence of descriptions of lesbian love in the Arabic tradition, and despite the assimilation of various aspects of Arabic homoeroticism in Western descriptions of love, French authors and poets still chose to follow the lines of heterosexual desire and phallocentric sexuality more generally when speaking of female erotic encounters. So just like what I really walk away thinking about is just how many layers of erasure, Mm -hmm. especially as women and then as queer women, as queer non-white women, as queer not-white women who are also Islamic. Like there are just so many Mm -hmm. layers of erasure that go on and that's awful. And it's physically almost impossible to get a hold of these texts. Right. Um, Sahar Amar talks about how, you know, like the only place that you can actually get these texts is in, in, in any sort of fragmentation seems to be in the West. Right. Because they have been physically destroyed by, you know, by more modern folks in the Middle East. And so she even in, in one of her articles goes on, goes on to talk about how her sister is an artist who did a piece called the Encyclopedia of Pleasure in 2001, where she did it's this embroidered sculpture installation mm. where she actually took lang- language from the encyclopedia and embroidered them on these boxes and created this like s- this structure because it, and it's she's she's trying to trying to make it be the 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 most complete thing that can be preserved she mm. says um the the in 2001 the egyptian artist gada amar who is my sister created a sculpture inspired from the medieval arabic text and entitled it the encyclopedia of pleasure this sculpture mm. is the first and only work in any media as far as i know devoted exclusively to this groundbreaking Arabic text. Her sculpture is an unprecedented and perhaps subversive gesture by an Arab woman to save from oblivion this essential text and, in broader terms, to break the silence imposed upon female eroticism in the Arab world and to resurrect a frank and non-judgmental discussion around women's sexuality that until today continues to be absent in the East." So it's it's really, really difficult for people to obtain access to medieval Arabic writings on alternative sexualities in the Middle East, right. which, again, like we saw in China, is so devastating that, like, there's this right. rich history and the people who would benefit from it the most are the people who cannot access it. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, know, it's, I just. I, yeah. It's That's tragic. something to end on. Yeah. And it's like, it sucks to end there. But I mean, as we saw with it, with the Chinese tradition, like that's, that's where we're at. Right. That's where we're at is just the, the erasure and silencing of our stories from history by those who are, who benefit from our silencing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, that, and that's shitty. And that's part of why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Like the hopeful note is that like, we hope in our work doing this to if at some level we can give just a little bit back of what this story is to the people who need it most like we've done our job Mm -hmm. 
we want to give our history back to ourselves and the history of that other people are literally blocked access from, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe they can access this podcast, but not those texts. And then they can know that like, this is true. Their history, Mm -hmm. that their, their own history is, is bigger than, than they've been told and, and more accepting in some level than they've been told. Absolutely. So, so, so on a lighter note, Gretchen, let's end our show. Yes. Our how gay were they ratings? How gay were they? Oh, I mean, if we're talking specifically about like Wallada, I'd put her at like a five. There's some evidence, but like literally anything else is like super gay. <laughs> 10 out of 10 out of 10 for, for literally everything else in this episode is like, well, that's gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Saffron yeah. massage, super gay. Oh boy, super gay. <laughs> Yeah, for me, um, yeah, definitely when, like, talking about Walida, it takes me back to, like, Judith Bennett's scholarship on, like, lesbian-like women and Mm. assigning certain behaviors and values to, you know, like, same-sex communities, and that's kind of where I place Walida. I don't know about it, but there's, you know, interesting things there. But, I mean, like, if you're gonna say that, you know, Hind and Alzarka are, like, the prime example of love between women, I'm gonna give you a 10 out of 10. Right. Um, maybe maybe like a 9.5, just like 0.5 taken off for the fact that all of these things are like coming from dudes being like, <laughs> lesbians. But, you know, <laughs> right. we, I mean, we gotta take what we can get from millennia of history being written by men. So, there you go. Right, right. And, and they're while there's some voyeurism, I do think there's at least a there are at least situations where they don't need to physically insert themselves in the same way. Like, yeah, there's the like, well, lesbianism is just a prelude to heterosexuality and that's gross. But then there's also the like willingness to understand that there may be women who prefer other women mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily need to insert themselves into that situation so yeah maybe, yeah maybe lose a couple points for the male gaze but or like half a point for the male gaze but at least at least it's i mean it's a lot more than we've seen in other like it's a lot more than we got even in the, the medieval cloisters from a male perspective mm-hmm who were just so scandalized and be like, I don't know what's happening. Right. This seems sort of work? like sex, but there's no penis, so it can't be sex, but it still seems really bad. So, and I'm not going to talk about it in case somebody wants to do more of it. Right. Also, if that you go panic. to a nunnery, just don't bang the ladies. Just don't yeah. do it, guys. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there at least is a, there's a much more positive, I think, understanding of it. And, and we get some lovely metaphors and some beautiful stories out of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Someone should expand the story of um, Hinden Alzarka too. Someone needs yes. to make that into it. I would, I would like that. Write me an epic sad love story because I love <laughs> suffering. Like, give me some the angst. Give me like, yeah, yeah, yes. Anyway, so, anyway, where where can where can they find us online if people want to connect with us individually or as a show? Uh, Lee, where can they find you? You can you can find me online talking about talking about comics, queer TV, continuing to talk about old timey queer folks over at a paradox in flux on Twitter. And uh, Gretchen, what about you? Uh, when I am not talking about saffron massages and thigh fencing, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over my favorite shows and books uh, um, over at thefandamentals.com or my personal website, gnellis.com. 
And people can also find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at GNLSWriter, all one word. History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, fun, fun things you found this week in the world of queer history, telling us happy pride, yay. Yay, um, at happy pride, everybody. Happy pride. Um, so that email is historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, shout out. We need to give um, shout out one of the emails that we got. It was so sweet. Oh, yeah. From Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. We think you're lovely. And Hannah sent us an email asking they wanted to do a persuasive speech for uh, their university and wanted to talk about like erasure in queer history. So good for you, Hannah. Good we for you. We hope that your project goes well. Yes. Spread, yes. spread it, spread it far and wide. Yep. Oh, and we also heard from Jennifer Shaw, who wrote that book that mm-hmm. Lee referenced the... a lot in the discussion of Claude Cahoon. So yes, yeah. yeah. So um, send us emails. We really, really enjoy getting them. We, we love really emails. love it when people say hi. Yes. If you're enjoying the show, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find us, and we can expand our awesome community. Um, Interact with us on Twitter. That is one thing we're trying to do a bit better at uh, being more pointed interacting on Twitter. So we love it when you guys do that, too. Yes. So that's it for History is Gay. Until next time. Stay queer. And stay curious. (laughs) 